Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Conversations podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Tuckwell, Senior CMO working in two Southern Regional Hospitals. The aim of this podcast is to review emergency topics with a rural and regional perspective. The opinions expressed are for general education and I encourage everyone to check their local guidelines and those of the New South Wales Emergency Care Institute. Good morning. I have with me this morning Dr Yash Goarika, who's a neurologist in Canberra. Uh, would you be able to tell us a bit about yourself? Thanks, um, Dr Goarika. Good morning, Louis. Yes, thank you. So I'm a consultant neurologist here at Calvary Public uh, Hospital in Bruce. I am a stroke neurologist with a subspecialty interest in management of stroke. And I am the director of the uh, stroke service at Calvary Hospital and have been managing and running the service since 2014. Oh, that's great and very helpful for the topic that we need to discuss today. So we'll start off as we usually do with a case. We have a 78-year-old woman who lives alone. She felt normal when she got up and had a shower, but went to have breakfast around 8 o'clock and found that she was dropping things with her right hand. Her daughter rang at about 10.30 and on finding her mother having difficulty answering questions, she rang the ambulance. The paramedics arrived and found her to have a right-sided facial droop and reduced power in the right upper and lower limbs, although she was able to lift against gravity. Her blood pressure was 195 on 110, heart rate 88, oxygen saturations 98% on room air, with a temperature of 37.3. She was taking telmosartan for her blood pressure and pariet for some reflux. She was an ex-smoker 20 years previously but had no history of stroke or ischemic heart disease. Now, following the New South Wales Stroke Clinical Pathway, we would initially obtain a full set of observations, record a GCS, check a blood sugar level and complete the ROSIA scale, which is the recognition of stroke in the emergency room. Now, Dr Yash, we are often in a hurry to get an urgent CT brain. Do you have a systematic approach to a neurological examination you would do prior to the patient going to CT? Yes, Lewis. Uh, I think that's a very important question. And often when an acute stroke patient comes to the emergency department, we neglect the clinical evaluation in the rush to get the imaging. And I think it's very important to do a quick and systematic assessment, which uh, usually takes just a couple of minutes before we obtain the CT scan. The things that are most critical are obtaining the time of onset of symptoms because all our stroke treatments for revascularization are time dependent. And then doing a quick assessment using the NIHSS stroke severity scale. And with a little bit of practice, the NIHSS can actually be completed in just under two minutes. Okay. If we are rushed and if there are obviously non-neurologists, then you don't have to do the full version of the NIH stroke scale for the examination. We could just do a cut-down version where we focus on speech. We focus on visual deficits to see whether they have hemianopia or a field defect and we focus on limb weakness. And 
this should give us enough information to work out clinically before the imaging as to what type of stroke it is. Is it uh, what territory it is? Like, is it uh, middle cerebral artery or any other territory? It gives us important information on the patient's level of consciousness, their speech deficits. And the NIHS actually is a very well-validated tool. And if we have that score beforehand and at baseline, it's also a prognostic uh, marker so it we have the appropriate information when we talk to patients about the severity of their stroke and it also helps us decide the treatments so that's what i would focus on getting a very 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 focused history time of onset and a very quick cut down nihs examination so dr yes just some specifics of how you actually yourself go about doing a quick examination as part of the nihs score Yes, Louis. So I think that's very important. And I think with practice, everybody should get good at uh, doing the NIHSs. It's quite a standardized examination. So you should follow the questions that are there. You should ask the patient's name, age, get them to follow two commands. While you're talking to the patient, it'll give you a good idea whether they have any speech abnormalities or not. And then if you're short of time, then the important things to do are to check whether they have a visual field effect by the confrontation testing, getting them to look at your face and then pointing to whether your hand is moving or not on the side. I would check for facial asymmetry to see whether they have facial weakness or not. And then we would check for limb weakness in the arms and the legs. That is probably that is all that is needed in the acute setting. A lot of times when uh, I get phone calls from smaller hospitals or from medical registrars, they launch into a detailed neurological examination, which is actually not needed in the acute stroke setting. It wastes time. And rather than checking for reflexes and doing Babinski's and formal neurological sensory examinations, we would, should just do a quick NIHS examination and get the patient to imaging. Well, that's very useful because I think that, it, as you say, it's something that we probably do need to practice so that we can get it done promptly and uh, it helps us when we're talking to you on the phone as well from a referral sort of point of view. Absolutely. So, for example, if I get a call from a rural hospital and they tell me that the NIHS is 2, I know straight away that this is a very mild stroke, the severity is low, and this patient may not need thrombolysis because studies have shown that patients whose NIHS is less than four do well anyways. On the other hand, if the NIHS is more than 12, I know straight away that it's a very severe stroke. It is probably going to be a large vessel occlusion. We may need to get angiograms and ECR organized. So it's, it's very useful information. There are online training videos that are available that help you get trained in how to do the NIHSs. And with a bit of practice, it can be done very, very quickly and accurately. Oh, very good. I think we'll aim to, to get our skills up in that area. the most important stroke mimics that we need to look for and how do we assess for these? Yes, so 25% of patients presenting to emergency department with uh, stroke symptoms will eventually turn out to be a mimic. 
the commonest mimics that we see in clinical practice are number one, migraines, especially in younger patients. The other common mimics that we see are seizures, like a post-seizure paralysis called totsparesis, and metabolic abnormalities, the commonest one being hypoglycemia. Yeah. The other common mimic that we see, at least in our stroke center, are patients with functional neurological symptoms, but that can sometimes be very hard to uh, detect and is often a diagnosis of exclusion after we've ruled everything else out. From a practical point of view, the commonest that we come in day-to-day practice are migraine variants. And these are patients who will present with focal neurological deficits, such as sensory abnormalities or speech deficits. And they may have these symptoms even without headaches. So the history taking is important when we are trying to work out whether it is a mimic or whether it's an actual stroke. Often mimics such as migraines will have positive symptoms, not negative symptoms. Yes. This means that, for example, if they have a sensory abnormality, then they will have tingling and burning or pins and needles. Whereas if it's ischemia and a stroke, it will be negative, which means they have numbness or loss of sensation. So that can be a useful tip to try and work out whether it is a mimic or not. Often with mimics, the deficits are much milder. Often they may not correspond to a single vascular territory. And often the deficits are variable, which means they fluctuate and change. However, it does take a lot of, I would say, experience and skill to accurately recognize mimics at the bedside. You do need a high... Uh, clinical suspicion. And often when patients are presenting with stroke-like symptoms, especially if they are focal symptoms such as hemiparesis or speech disturbance like aphasia, the safest and uh, best thing to do is to work them up as an acute stroke. I see. And is there an age beyond which you would sort of doubt migraine as a a diagnosis Um, So it would be unusual for a first presentation of migraine to happen in older individuals, say after the age of 70. Mm -hmm. These patients usually have vascular risk factors, and if they present with stroke-like symptoms, then I would treat them as acute strokes. Usually, if there is migraine as a cause of symptoms, then either there is a previous history of migraines or there is a previous history of headaches or there is a strong family history of migraines. In the absence of these and in an older individual, I would not consider migraine as a potential diagnosis. Very good. Now, in terms of differentiating clinically between cortical and subcortical strokes, how would you do that and why would this be important? So... The clinical differentiation depends on whether the individual has any cortical signs or not. So the cortical signs that happen with a stroke depend, again, on the territory. But again, the commonest strokes are usually involving the middle cerebral artery. And if they have aphasia, which is 
a speech deficit. So this is different from dysarthria, which is just slurred speech. Yeah. So if they have aphasia, which is uh, difficulty understanding a conversation, if they have difficulty speaking, if they can't get the correct words out, if they can't name objects, if they can't repeat, then this individual has an aphasia and has a cortical stroke. Other cortical signs which are very important are neglect, which can be either sensory or visual, which means they can't distinguish between two simultaneous stimuli on either side of the body. And if they have a field defect like hemianopia, which is again a cortical sign. So if any of these clinical signs are present, then it's definitely a cortical stroke. Subcortical strokes are usually either pure motor or pure sensory or a combination of motor and sensory, which means they either have weakness or sensory deficit, but they should not have these cortical signs like aphasia, neglect, or hemianopia. Differentiating between cortical and subcortical strokes is important because if you have a cortical stroke, then you tend to have more deficit and in the long term, they can be more disabling uh, than subcortical strokes. I see, and a cortical strokes more likely to be due to a large vessel occlusion. To have a cortical stroke, usually they would either have an occlusion in the middle cerebral artery or the posterior cerebral artery, and they can, they or they tend to be, yes, as you said, large vessel occlusions. So, Dr. Yash. How do you correlate the clinical signs to help you ascertain the territory being affected, such as middle versus anterior or posterior cerebral artery? Yes, that's a good question, Louis. So each territory usually has a constellation of clinical features, which with a little bit of reading and a little bit of practice, if you identify them at the bedside, they can help you identify which territory is involved. Now, with left middle cerebral artery, majority of patients will have right face, arm, and leg weakness, and they will also have aphasia. With right middle cerebral artery involvement, the most important cortical sign usually is neglect. So they will have left-sided uh, weakness, but they will also have neglect, which is, as I said before, inability to recognize two simultaneous stimuli. Anterior cerebral artery strokes are rare, but we do see them from time to time. And if you have a pure ACA territory stroke, then they just have leg weakness because that's what the anterior cerebral artery supplies. It supplies uh, the leg area in the motor strip in the brain. Posterior circulation strokes uh, are more challenging because the symptoms that we see with them, such as vertigo, uh, ataxia, disequilibrium, can also happen due to peripheral causes such as vestibular neuronitis or labyrinthitis. So the clinical diagnosis of posterior uh, circulation like PCA, territory or vertebral artery are, are more challenging. There are some brainstem stroke syndromes, which if you see, they help you localize beautifully but then we're getting into very technical, nitty-gritty, mm. neurological uh, signs and symptoms, which I don't think is helpful to get into in the acute setting. Sure. And in these patients with vertigo, what features would make you suspect a posterior circulation stroke rather than a peripheral cause? Yes. So again, with acute strokes, the most important thing to keep in mind is onset. So if someone has... Uh, very sudden onset of neurological symptoms, 
then it is usually vascular unless proven otherwise. With posterior circulation strokes, they have vertigo, they have ataxia, which is imbalance. The classic story that patients will say is that they can't walk, they have to hang on to the walls or the furniture if they're trying to walk. They may may not have vomiting. If they have associated symptoms such as double vision, diplopia, or slurred speech such as dysarthria, then it's definitely more in favor of a stroke. Because if you only have peripheral causes of vertigo, you should not see these symptoms. The other important thing to do at the bedside would be the head impulse test. Yes. Because if we find a positive head impulse test, then that has a high specificity and sensitivity for this to be a peripheral cause of vertigo. Central vertigo, again, is uh, not positional. So the patients experience symptoms irrespective of position, irrespective of whether their eyes are open or closed. Okay. Whereas peripheral vertigo is more often than not positional. And again, the story that patients describe is that if they're lying very still in bed with eyes closed, they don't experience any vertigo. But the moment they try to move or open their eyes, they feel dizzy. And if this is the story that you're getting, then it's more likely to be peripheral than central. Yes. So these are the few things that we try and use to help work out whether the uh, symptoms are due to a posterior circulation stroke or due to a peripheral cause. Another useful feature can be the presence of nystagmus. If an individual has gaze-evoked nystagmus, which means nystagmus on looking in a particular direction, again, that favors a more central pathology than peripheral. Oh, very useful and, and a very tricky it does, clinical presentation. Yes, often. so posterior circulation strokes are, are difficult. They're challenging even for us. And again, even after all these years, we find the clinical diagnosis sometimes difficult. And we do then have to rely on the imaging as to try help work out what exactly is going on. Now, our current stroke pathway suggests that if it's less than four and a half hours since the onset of the stroke, to contact a neurologist to consider thrombolysis. Uh, being on the receiving end of such a referral, what do you need to know from the rural doctor calling regarding this? Yes, very important. So if you are uh, in a rural setting and you have an acute stroke patient, then the things that you need to look for, number one, time of onset. It's very, very important. Intravenous thrombolysis can only be given if the onset of symptoms is less than four and a half hours. If a definite time of onset is not known, then we work on what's called time when the patient was last seen well. Yes. For example, if a patient wakes up with stroke symptoms, then the time that the patient was last seen well was when he went to bed the night before, not when he woke up with the stroke symptoms. And we would take onset as when the patient went to bed. So time of onset is very important. Secondly, if possible, an NIH stroke score gives us very useful information on the severity. For example, if the stroke severity is less than four, we may not thrombolize these patients because the literature suggests that the benefit from thrombolysis is uncertain and these patients tend to do well anyways. Thirdly, obviously, we would need 
the information from imaging, at least uh, a non-contrast CT brain is a minimum to exclude a hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, we would want to know if there is any contraindication for thrombolysis. And the common things that we uh, want to exclude are whether there are any anticoagulants, such as warfarin or the newer anticoagulants like apixaban or dabigatran or rivaroxaban, whether there is any history of previous intracranial hemorrhage, which is usually an absolute contraindication for thrombolysis, whether there has been any major recent surgery or trauma in the last three weeks, whether there is any history of recent uh, myocardial infarction in the last three to four weeks. So these are the things that we would like to know whether before we take a decision on thrombolysis. So time of onset, stroke severity score, whether the CT shows a hemorrhage or not, and whether there are any contraindications for thrombolysis. These are the four things to have ready for us. Very good. Yes, we always try to you know, give you the right information at the right time. So now what time frame are you currently using for thrombolysis and is this affected by the clinical presentation? So the time frame for intravenous thrombolysis is still four and a half hours. Okay. According to the latest Stroke Foundation guidelines, intravenous thrombolysis can be considered for patients uh, with wake-up strokes, okay. but there are very strict criteria for that. From a wake-up, if we this is a wake-up stroke, then we could potentially thrombolyze them up to nine hours from onset. But uh, we also need to do uh, special imaging like CT perfusion or right. MRI uh, perfusion to make sure that these patients have a mismatch. And most of the times, I don't think these imaging modalities are available in smaller hospitals. So from a practical point of view, intravenous thrombolysis should only be attempted or done under four and a half hours. Oh, very good. That's very helpful. Now... Which patients should we be ordering a CT angiogram? That's from the aortic arch to the circle of Willis. Yes. So the current evidence and current guidelines uh, suggest that we should be doing a CT angiogram for all patients who come with an acute stroke. Okay. Because if we do identify a large vessel occlusion, then these patients should be sent for endovascular clot retrieval. And the window for endovascular clot retrieval is six hours for acute patients, but it can be done up to 24 hours in selected patients, depending on their stroke severity and also on imaging where we look for penumbra. So the bottom line is that if you have the capacity and capability, then Every patient who presents with an acute ischemic stroke should at least have a non-contrast CT brain and a CT angiogram. Fair enough. It's, and that's independent of the NIH stroke score? The only ones that I would probably not consider doing a CT angiogram is the ones who have got very mild symptoms, which means their NIH stroke score is two or less. Oh, good. Okay. But again, there are subtleties in this. The NIH stroke score underestimates the severity of some strokes. For example, if you have a middle cerebral artery occlusion, some patients may only have aphasia or dysphasia as a deficit and nothing else. And then the NIH stroke score is two. Again, some patients may only have hemianopia as a deficit 
and they might have a large like PCA or bacillar obstruction. And again, the NIHS will only be two. So it, in certain situations, it does underestimate the severity of the stroke. So it would be wrong to rely on the NIHSs totally. So current guidelines do recommend that if you have the cap capability, any patient who's coming in with an acute stroke, and if especially if they're under six hours from their onset, you should be doing a CT angiogram. Great. That's very helpful because you know, in some centres such as ours, we sometimes need to transport the patient from another hospital after hours. Yes. But it's good to be, you know, understanding that we're we're doing the right thing in doing that. Now, the New South Wales HETI site has regular emergency medicine updates, which I would encourage our listeners to have a look at. One from May of last year was discussing the benefit of perfusion scanning rather than time alone for selecting patients for clot retrieval. Would you mind commenting on the use of perfusion scanning and how this might affect our considering time from onset when referring patients? Yes, so that is very important. So the window for uh, endovascular clot retrieval actually now is up to 24 hours. Okay. So patients who are between 6 and 24 hours of onset, and if they have a large vessel occlusion, can still receive endovascular clot retrieval if they have a viable penumbra and they have a large mismatch. Now, this can only be detected with some form of perfusion imaging. The one that is most widely available is CT perfusion. Larger centers would obviously go for MR, MRI imaging. So in a patient who has presented to your center, let's say hypothetically at the six-hour mark, you do a CT brain and a CT angio for this patient, and it identifies that this individual has an M1 occlusion, an MCA occlusion in the proximal part, then this patient may still benefit from clot retrieval. And I would strongly look at getting this patient to a center that has perfusion imaging capability, because if he has a salvageable penumbra, then they could still go ahead and benefit from clot retrieval. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. So, Dr. Yash, if we have a normal CT brain and the patient's not eligible for thrombolysis or clot retrieval, what antiplatelet regime do you normally recommend? Yes. So, in patients who are not going for revascularization therapy, we still need to start them on antiplatelets. The current evidence and guidelines do recommend dual antiplatelet therapy for acute ischemic strokes. The evidence recommends using aspirin 100 milligrams daily in combination with clopidogrel 75 milligrams daily for four weeks. And after that, the patients are converted to monotherapy, preferably clopidogrel, but they can be changed back to aspirin as well. And if there is it preferable to load them with 300 milligrams of aspirin if their CT brain doesn't show a bleed? So if these patients are uh, treatment naive and have not been on any antiplatelet agents, then our protocol is to load them with 300 milligrams of aspirin when they present. And then from the next day, they go on to dual antiplatelet therapy. Okay, that's great. 
Now, we do see a lot of patients with mild stroke symptoms. Which ones should we be transferring to a stroke centre? So technically, Louis, all patients with a stroke should be transferred to a stroke centre because the evidence is that all patients uh, with an acute ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke will benefit from stroke unit care, irrespective of whether they receive revascularization therapy. Stroke unit care has been shown to reduce morbidity and mortality by more than 20% compared to managing uh, stroke patients on a standard ward. So even if they have had a mild stroke, these patients should technically be referred to a stroke unit for organized stroke care. Often that is not possible given Mm -hmm. the constraints that we have with hospital beds. So again, it comes down to the stroke severity. If the NIHSS is less than four, usually indicates a very mild stroke, unless they have aphasia or hemianopia. Yes. And those are the patients that you may potentially not refer to a stroke centre. Now, it's not uncommon for a patient's symptoms to resolve in the emergency department in keeping with a TIA. Should we be admitting these patients? So, again, it, it depends on the, the risk profile of the patient. The ABCD score can be useful to help make these decisions. The protocol that we have at Calvary Hospital is if a patient presents with a TIA and if their ABD, ABCD2 score is more than four, then we prefer to admit them for 24 hours. Okay. Again, in patients who have a TIA that is prolonged where their symptoms have lasted for two hours or more, it's very highly likely that they actually have had a small stroke and these patients would benefit from admission. We tend to recommend doing either carotid dopplers or carot uh, CT angiogram in all TIA patients at baseline to make sure that they don't have a high-grade carotid stenosis because if we find that they have more than 70% symptomatic carotid stenosis, then these patients should definitely be admitted and referred for urgent carotid endotrectomies. So it's a bit nuanced. It's not We can't have a blanket rule saying that these TIs should be admitted or these TIs should be discharged. It, it comes down on a case-by-case basis. But these are some of the things that I would recommend doing doing their ABCD score, making sure that they do not have carotid stenosis or atrial fibrillation, and looking at the duration of the TIA symptoms, because studies have shown that if patients have had TIA symptoms for more than one to two hours, then they actually end up having small infarcts rather than being a TIA. Okay. So that probably leads to my next Sort of question. Some regional centres do have access to an MRI, which is usually off-site. Which of our suspected stroke or TIA patients should we be getting an MRI scan on and what time frame is optimal for this? In an ideal scenario, all patients should get an MRI and all patients with a suspected TIA or a stroke should go for an MRI because DWI uh, imaging is the most accurate and sensitive modality for helping diagnose ischemic strokes. Regarding time frame, given that most of these MRIs in your areas would be offsite at least within 24 hours is okay. what I would recommend.
Oh, that's been a great overview. And we'll just move on to another case. Now, this is a 65-year-old male brought in by ambulance who who has arrived two hours post-onset of a dense left-sided weakness with dysarthria and neglect. Now, his urgent CT brain shows no hemorrhage. And after consultation with the stroke registrar and consent from the family, the decision's made to give thrombolysis. However, his blood pressure is 200 over 115. Now, what agent would you use to lower his blood pressure to make him eligible for thrombolysis? Yes. So to thrombolyze this patient, we would want his uh, blood pressure to be below 180 over 100 millimeters of mercury. The guidelines recommend using either intravenous beta blockers, such as labetalol or esmolol, which may not be available at smaller sites. So intravenous metoprolol could be used. Another agent that we often use in our emergency department is intravenous hydralazine. And we give small boluses of either intravenous hydralazine or intravenous uh, beta blockers such as labetalol or metoprolol until we bring the blood pressure down to below 180 over 100. And if we are able to do that, then we go ahead with thrombolysis. Okay, so for labetalol... We often start with, say, 20 milligrams, or would you prefer, say, 10 just to be on the safe side? So with Labitalol, our protocol is to use aliquots of 20 milligram while we are monitoring. So these patients are managed in our resuscitation area in the ED. They have to have cardiac monitoring and blood pressure monitoring so that we look for any potential bradycardia, and we are continuously monitoring the blood pressure. So with labetalol, I would be comfortable using 20 milligram intravenous doses. With hydralazine, we usually use boluses of 5 milligrams to lower the blood pressure. Okay, that's good to know. Now, he is thrombolized, but the weather's not terribly good, so he has to wait in now emergency department prior to transfer to the tertiary centre. And four hours post-TPA, he develops a severe headache and vomits. He becomes confused and drowsy with a GCS of nine. How would you manage this patient? Yes, so clinically, it looks like this patient has developed an intracerebral hemorrhage post-thrombolysis. So the first priority would be to get an urgent CT brain to see whether that has happened or not. If an hemorrhage is is confirmed, then I would look at trying to transfer him urgently to a tertiary centre in the meanwhile, the key things would be giving stopping thrombolysis if it is still running because the infusion runs for an hour uh, and sometimes we see uh, hemorrhages developed during that period. Okay. If the infusion has already finished, then avoiding all further blood thinning medications such as antiplatelets and anticoagulants. Blood pressure control is very important to try and prevent the hematoma from expans- expanding. And we would aim to keep systolic blood pressure below 160 millimeters of mercury. Mm-hmm. And lastly, to give him fresh frozen plasma. Okay. If a hemorrhage is demonstrated. Are there any other agents we can give to help? Um, there is no evidence that using prothrombinex or these agents is beneficial. Okay. So quite a, a tricky situation. So... I think that that's been a great overview of the acute assessment and and management of of stroke patients, particularly in our rural emergency departments. So thank you very much for that. Is there any other 
tips or suggestions you'd have for doctors working in rural areas as to how we should be best managing these patients? So I think the most important thing to realize is that stroke is is an acute emergency and time is brain. For every one minute that a vessel is occluded and the brain is not receiving blood supply, you lose 2 million neurons for every one minute. So if a suspected stroke presents to your emergency department, then doing the clinical and imaging assessments as soon as possible and getting advice uh, from the closest stroke center on thrombolysis or clot retrieval is, I think, the most important thing to do. Often we see this scenario where a patient does present within the time window, say two hours from onset or three hours from onset, but by the time the imaging and everything is done and the phone call is made to the neurologist, it's either beyond four and a half hours or five hours. So so getting your systems organized so that when an acute stroke presents, rapid clinical assessment and imaging is done ideally within 20 minutes so that if the patient is eligible for revascularization therapy, then that can be done. Very good. Well, we'll take all that on board and hopefully yeah, we'll be streamlining our stroke management in the future. So thanks again for your time today, Dr. Garawaka. We really appreciate it. It's and a, yeah, It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks right. for the opportunity. Thanks a lot. <laughs>